Let me start with a quote by Leonard Goppel in a 1978 commentary on 1 Peter, originally published in German, later translated into English. He says, Christ has laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus, go about the daily routine, pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles over this stone, either fulfilling or falling short of their ultimate destiny. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are gathered here expectantly waiting for a word from you, the word. You, Jesus, continue to speak and speak and speak to every generation that comes, every generation that approaches you. And so, Lord, as we gather here in May of 2023, 216 years after this church was founded, we continue, Lord, to seek your will and to be involved in the work that you are doing. And so would you please give us soft hearts this morning to receive you, whatever it is that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I had a whole other sermon planned for this morning, and uh, Friday morning I had to just throw it away. <laughs> um, actually, some of the, the work to that sermon, of course, is integrated into this one, um, but it, it, it happens sometimes, and it's, it's both frustrating and exciting to try to follow where the Lord is going, and uh, hopefully... That's what we're doing this morning. At least, though, the text remained the same, 1 Peter chapter 2, and so I do invite you to turn with me uh, to 1 Peter 2, verse 4, starting at verse 4 at this time. You may notice that this passage comes before the passage that we looked at last week, 1 Peter 2, 19 through 25, and um, that is just how the lectionary has it. I, I don't make the rules just try to follow them sometimes. Um, so this is the only instance of this happening. Next week we'll be in chapter 3. But we are still in First Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and I invite you to stand now for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Got microphones on, no cars beeping. Okay, praise the Lord. Here we go. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. So stones, living stone, cornerstone, rejected stone, stone of stumbling. Why all this stuff about stones? Now, I could try to explain it myself, but I feel that I wouldn't be doing it justice. So I've brought with me Professor Karen Jobes of Wheaton College um, to explain it a little bit for us. And she does such a good job in her commentary talking about the stone passages in the Old Testament and what Peter's doing. This is what she writes. She says, A well-developed tradition existed in Jewish writings that identified the stone with the Messiah. All that remained for the New Testament writers was to identify Jesus as that Messiah. The stone image is found in three Old Testament passages. Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, 14, and 15, and Isaiah 28, 16. And all three of them are quoted in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. When Jesus applies the rejected stone of Psalm 118 to himself, he's probably drawing on a well-established tradition in Judaism. In Isaiah 8, the Lord Almighty is a sanctuary But he will be for the houses of Israel a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The stone image occurs once more in Isaiah 28 to refer to the object the Lord places in Zion. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts in it will not be put to shame." So even before the writing of the New Testament, the stone image of these three passages came to be understood as messianic, as referring to the long-awaited Messiah. Now a couple pages later, she writes this, which I find to be profound and orienting for our study. She says, Peter's use of the stone passages, which it is the most extensive reflection on these passages in the New Testament, His use reaches far beyond any other contemporary usage. Peter uses this powerful image, the stone, and Peter's name means rock, remember. 
He uses this powerful image to declare that Jesus is the touchstone of one's destiny. The stone, then, is either the heart of a new foundation, a cornerstone, the the beginning of a new kingdom to which other stones and materials are added to construct something new, or the stone is an obstacle, a liability, a cause of stumbling, destruction, even shame. First Peter says that there are no other options, friends. The stone is either a source of life or a source of destruction. Now, writing to persecuted believers who are largely Gentile, non-Israelites, in Asia Minor in the first century, Peter is trying to encourage them to hold fast to their faith through trial by showing them who they really are. Who they are. And, thus, what their true purpose is. Why they exist in the first place. For them, he says, Christ is a living stone. The only other instance of this phrase in Greek literature is in the 6th century where it refers to magnets, which either attract or repel. Christ is a living stone for these believers. He's the first stone to build a new world upon. But for others who reject this stone, who don't see it as the cornerstone, he can only be a source of stumbling. So in this text, Peter talks about this stone. But he encourages the believers in Asia Minor, and I think in turn he encourages us today by telling us who we are and why we exist, what is our purpose. And so those are the the twin themes that I want to dig into this morning. So let's jump in. Now, one thing to do that I find helpful with a passage like this is to give a paraphrase that uh, really just lays out the, the substructure, the kind of bones of the passage. Because Peter goes in many different directions with subordinate clauses, with metaphors and images, with citations of the Old Testament. So it's helpful to just get the bare bones of what he's saying, and then I think to go back in and fill in the details. So I'm going to give you a paraphrase that I developed in preparing this sermon that I found helpful, and hopefully it'll lay the groundwork for our discussion to follow. So to these believers in Asia Minor, the first century, this is what Peter says. He says, as you come to this stone, Christ, Jesus, you are being built into a spiritual house or a holy priesthood, which exists to offer acceptable worship to God through Jesus Christ. There's one. He says, honor of a vital virtue in the ancient world, shame and honor. Honor belongs then to the one who trusts this stone, trusts enough to build upon it. Whereas the ones who do not trust in this stone stumble, not believing the gospel. 
You who trust this stone, though, Christians in Asia Minor, Jew and Gentile, you are a chosen race, a holy nation, he says, a people for God's possession, who exist, second purpose, to proclaim the nature and acts of God who who called you out of darkness into light. The crescendo ends here. Once you were not a people at all, but now you are God's people. His treasured possession, His new kingdom here on earth. So not sure if you caught it there, but what we have in this passage is two you are statements. The first one comes in verse 5 and has to do with worship. You are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and you exist to worship. And the second you are statement, followed by a purpose clause, is verse 9. You are what Israel was always supposed to be. A chosen race, a holy nation, who exist to declare the excellencies of God, to bear, in other words, witness, worship and witness. And lastly, in verse 10, we get this extended reflection on Hosea, chapters 1 and 2, where Peter closes out this passage in an incredibly encouraging way. And so let's dive into the text in greater detail now, 1 Peter 2. So let's look particularly at verse 5. <clears throat> verse 5. As these believers are said to approach Christ, to trust in Christ, to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is truly Messiah, the Christ, as they come to him, a living stone, rather than rejecting him, Peter says that you are, second person, looking straight at them, you are being built into a spiritual house. We get spiritual house, holy priesthood, and then language of sacrifice. House, priesthood, and sacrifice should make you think of something in particular in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, especially the first five books, you'll see that worship was a pretty major element of Israel's existence. Read the book of Leviticus, there's all these laws and instructions about what constitutes proper worship. Who, who could be a priest and who could bring the sacrifices? Worship. Where ought worship to happen? Tabernacle, temple, worship. Peter, the, the Jewish apostle par excellence, Peter here says to Gentiles, who in the first century would have been and were arrested for going into the temple. He says, you are now a new temple, place of worship. You exist, in other words, to worship God finally in a truly acceptable way. You are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, which exists to worship God. 
Now, there's one text that is cited, there's so many texts that are cited, but I can't mention them all, but one in particular toward the end of Isaiah, which is just so striking to me in this context. In Isaiah 56, we get this grand vision of the end of days, the restoration of the kingdom, when Israel would come back from exile and God would do something new. And God says that these ones, referring to foreigners, Gentiles, he says, these ones I will bring to my holy mountain, and their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. It goes on to say that my house in these days shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There was another figure in the first century who quoted that verse. Jesus, when he's clearing the temple, says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, not just Israelites. And here Peter says that you, as the church, the people of God, are that house. Worship. If you jump down after a few quotations, which hopefully Job's comments illuminated, you get in verse 9 another you are statement. Between the you are statements, there's a discussion of who gets the honor and who gets the shame. And it says the honor is not for those born Israelites, for the Pharisees and religious officials in high places. The honor is just for those who trust, who believe in the stone, the Christ. And those who do not believe, it says they stumble. And ironically, if you look in the New Testament, those who stumbled often were Israelites who should not have stumbled. Looking again right in the faces of his Jew-Gentile congregations, those whom he's trying to enrich and encourage, Peter says, you are a chosen race. We get a string of phrases here, all synonymous roughly. A chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now if you've read the Old Testament, you've seen this language all over the place. In Exodus 19, through Moses, God says to Israel, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be, get this, a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. Deuteronomy, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the earth. Peter is speaking to non Israelites largely here who've trusted that Jesus is the Messiah, and he, he says now that these people are what Israel was meant to be all along. And we've talked about worship, but here, with this language of chosen race, holy nation, people for God's possession, this special group always existed to be a light to the nations. We've talked about this in Isaiah especially. They were to be at the top of the mountain, a city set on a hill, a kind of light you put out in the summer so that bugs are attracted. But to draw all the peoples of the earth 
to this culture, to this land, to this way of living, a way of worship, a way of love. In other words, Israelites were never meant to hoard the privileges and blessings of God all to themselves. But friends, they did. They did. At least some of them did. But we see here that Peter, whose entire worldview has been transformed by Jesus, now sees things in a new light. He sees that the people of God are not those defined by certain blood, by certain genealogical records, not by circumcision, observing food laws. The people of God are defined by trust. Those who trust in the stone that is Christ, who trust in it enough to build their lives upon it. You are, he says, the people of God who exist to proclaim the excellencies of God to all the world, to be a light to all nations. Peter says you are a new temple, a new priesthood. You exist to worship God. And you are a holy nation, a chosen people who exist to bear witness about your worship of God, about your experience of God, to bear witness to the world and not to keep it to yourselves. And lastly, in verse 10, we get this striking set of allusions to Hosea, the prophet Hosea, chapters 1 and 2. And I don't know if you've read Hosea recently, but Hosea is prophecy, but it's a story, and it's a story in which a certain man by the name of Hosea is commanded to marry a, a, a prostitute. Gomer is her name. And Gomer bears a few children to Hosea, and these children represent Israel, at least in chapter 1. And so Gomer conceives and bears a child, and God says to name this child Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And then after that child is weaned, she bears another child, is commanded to name that child Lo-Ruchamah, which means no mercy. God says this is because you were my people, but since you have forsaken me, you are no longer my people. You, you were shown mercy as this chosen nation, but since you've left me, you no longer receive mercy. That whole text is speaking about Israel, who were God's people, were shown mercy, but because of their disobedience, were not, were not. Later in Hosea, though, we get language of, of restoration. The people who were a people, then were not a people, are said to be a people again. Who were shown mercy, then weren't, will be shown mercy again. But in 1 Peter 2, Peter applies this text to you and me, to Gentiles. A people who were never a people if that makes sense. 
A people who, in the eyes of the Israelites, were, were, were never on the inside. They had nothing to lose. Israel had it, then didn't, then had it. We've never had it. And Peter says, now you have it. If in coming to the stone, you don't reject it, but you trust in it, now you have it. Now you are what Israel was always meant to be. You are Israel, the new Israel. You are God's people, his treasured possession. Whoever encounters the stone is inescapably changed through the encounter. Now, either one sees it and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles and misses out on their destiny, in the words of Gothel. The stone has been set, friends. The world knows it. We know it. But what kind of stone this is, depends entirely on our perception of it. Either we see the stone as as a cornerstone, the beginning of a magnificent new building project, a new world, or we see it as a worthless rock, something that's at best in the way and should be thrown back into the quarry. Either we see the stone and we trust in it and build our lives upon it and around it, or we reject it and leave it alone, only to stumble over it sometime later in the dark. Jesus Christ is the stone. He's the stone that that the builders should not have rejected, but did. He is the living stone, the the magnetic stone, the cornerstone, the beginning of God's new creation. Now, so often, friends, to apply biblical text to today, you have to do a lot of interpretive work to translate from the ancient context to the current context. But in this case... All of that work is unnecessary. Peter is speaking to us, you and me. For centuries, we Gentiles had been told in the eyes of God that we were nothing. But now Peter, the, the Jewish apostle, the, the, the pillar of the church, the rock, Upon which I will build my church, Peter says to us that you are a holy nation, God's new temple. If you trust this stone, friends, seeing it as the cornerstone of God's new kingdom, if you believe the stone enough to build your lives upon it, not rejecting, but accepting it as a new beginning. Peter says that you will be honored, treasured, privileged more than any people in all of history. But, he says, if you reject this stone, 
He doesn't say it'll hit you over the head. He doesn't say it'll come and attack you or something, no. But he does say that at some point in the dark, it will cause you to trip and fall. This morning, I want you to look at the stone. To to look at it long and hard, friends. And to answer the most vital question you will ever have to answer, which is, what kind of stone is it? Let's pray. Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone for us. Lord, may you be that kind of stone for all the people that we think about, that keep us up at night, that we worry about, that we pray for, Lord. For the world, may you be not a stumbling stone, but a cornerstone, Jesus. Lord, you are the beginning, you are the foundation, you are the rock. Help us to trust you enough to build our lives upon you. I pray that you would bless us in unity as we partake of this blessed meal together, communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.